So good morning. Um, I'm Sanjay Kumar, your host for New Books in Southeast South Asia series. And I have the pleasure and privilege today to introduce to you uh, a wonderful book, Cultivating Community, Interest, Identity and Ambiguity in Indian Social Mobilization by Michael Youngblood, uh, who received his PhD in Cultural Anthropology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome to the show, Michael. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Sanjay. To start with, as I say, uh, I can see that the book has been a result of your PhD dissertation in cultural anthropology. Uh, would you like to share with our readers the impetus for writing this book? Sure. Uh, it actually goes back quite a ways into my younger years. I grew up in a fairly typical American suburb uh, in the Midwestern states uh, and grew increasingly frustrated in my youth uh, about how isolated I was from things happening not only in bigger cities but also in the rest of the world. And so when I uh, was in college, again in the Midwest, I became fascinated with the idea of going to a part of the earth that was as different as, uh, as I could imagine. Um, India somehow captured my fascination as a place that epitomized that, in part because I realized that if you sort of drilled a hole through the globe, you would end up somewhere around India on the complete opposite side of the planet. Um, so I became fascinated with India, and I had an opportunity to go study in India during my college years. So I spent a year uh, on a program in Maharashtra affiliated with the University of Pune. And, um, and while there, uh, I was quite aware of a number of interesting social movements happening around, uh, around the city of Pune and in, in Maharashtra in general. And many years later, when I was in graduate school, uh, as a uh, as an anthropology student, I thought back to some of those interesting movements that I had heard of and uh, and and some occasions witnessed in in Maharashtra, and one in particular, the Shetkari Sangatna, uh, had sort of stuck in my mind as as a uh, as a movement that seemed not only quite robust and, and interesting, but also in some ways a little bit paradoxical. It, it raised some questions for me that I uh, continued to be fascinated with. So I did a little research, learned that that movement was still happening and still quite robust. Uh, and as I approached the time to determine a thesis topic uh, for my graduate studies, I thought that the Shikri Sangatna would be a, a very interesting thing to pursue further. So, um, in short, I, uh, a few years later, I found myself uh, landing back in Maharashtra State uh, and uh, buying a motorcycle and, uh, and, and scooting around the state as much as I could and trying to find out what was happening with that movement and spent about three years in that process. Thank you, Mike. I mean, it comes out very well in your introduction, too. And it's, it's, it's very interesting to read how uh, the whole journey of uh, your uh, research into this book really reads like a voyage uh, into a social movement. So that was very heartening to read. My first question would be something which I take up from your own introduction, uh, where you frame the theoretical framework of this book. 
And you basically say that the book explores the motivations and subjectivity of participants, I quote, in a mass social movement. My question would be that you hear in this section, you also speak about uh, a critique, which you claim that you would like to examine about how literature on social movements have looked at movements from the non-Western world. Um, and if I may use your words of non-Western subjects. And this is interesting because in India, one always associates um, social movements with mass change. Uh, and you use the word mass social movement. So would you be able to tell us a bit more? Why did you pick on this movement? And would you think that that really represents, in some sense, many Indian social movements? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So what I mean by mass social movement, I was it was uh, some uh, it was a, a language that I was using to differentiate something like the Shritikari Sangatna uh, from something that is much more um, specific to a identifiable interest group where we can I, we can understand why that particular group of individuals would come together around a, a, a relatively um, tightly defined cause. Um, uh, I'm thinking of um, some other struggles in India, for example, uh, where you have uh, uh, certain social segments struggling for rights of access to land that is uh, of customary use. For example, some of the Adivasi movements uh, around the, the country or, you know, the um, uh, what are often the communities that are often referred to as tribal. So the indigenous folks of, of particular lands, a relatively uh, tightly defined uh, social interest group uh, or perhaps the Chipko and Dolan movement in, uh, in the north. Um, so in Something like the Shetkiri Sangatna, what we see is a very broad swath of society coming together, uh, fighting for ostensibly the same thing. So we have uh, the predominantly folks who live in rural areas, but what we see is uh, a very broad economic spectrum. So people who are... Uh, who might be labeled rich farmers, so folks with large tracts of land and shiny tractors, um, all the way down to folks who are really marginal land uh, landholders who are just sort of scraping by and growing enough food to feed their families and maybe participating in the market a little bit when they have a surplus, but mostly feeding their families. Um, and even landless laborers, folks who have no land and sell themselves out as as laborers on other people's property. So this is a this is what I mean by mass. It's quite a broad spectrum of folks, mm -hmm. and yet they're coming together and uh, on the surface, at least, fighting for the same sort of economic goals, the same concessions from local and national government um, in terms of reforming the economy. But these goals seem a little bit paradoxical for different social segments within that broad slice of, of humanity. Um, so I was trying to tease apart what it is uh, that's happening when you have such a broad group of people angling for the same kinds of outcomes, or at least on the surface. Excellent.
when I look at the structure of the book and when I go back to the subtitle of the book, you speak about interest, identity and ambiguity. And these are the three key terms that are brought up in a very theoretically nuanced way. Just for the sake of the audience of the show, would you like to speak a bit more on how you unpack the concept of ambiguity in this book in the context of the Shetkari Sangatana? Mm, sure. So ambiguity is something that I found quite fascinating. I'll give you a little background into how I found my way into uh, the my understanding of the movement. And I think it's... Um, probably has a lot of parallels in the way we think about other movements around the world. When you speak with folks or when you observe them in the Shri Sangatana participating in the movement, what you see is people using a very common idiom of the movement. They talk about the issues and who they are and what they stand for in a very similar way. Um, they, uh, they behave as if they are sort of in lockstep agreement. So when you watch a, a, a rally of 10,000 or 20,000 people, you'll see them sort of raising their fists in response to the same, uh, this, the same slogans being said by, by the leaders. They sing songs together that were written in the movement. Uh, they wear similar uh, outfits to identify themselves as, as participants in the movement. Um, and and it, they're, they're even struggling in ways that are very likely to get them hurt. There's, uh, you know, there's quite a number of folks in the Shetkari Sangatna who have been uh, put in jail numerous times or have been um, beaten by the police uh, in order to break up large rallies. And, uh, and there are folks who have been martyred, who have, uh, who have uh, been shot and, and perished. So... There seems to be this extraordinary level of commitment and extraordinarily extraordinary level of solidarity and common identity. And I think that's, as outsiders, how we tend to view movements in general, wherever they're happening in the world. I mean, I think of things not to compare these as uh, as apples to apples, but if you look at movements like uh, ISIS or Al Qaeda and you think about uh, how we tend to see all of these folks as sort of a hive of like thinkers. As I got uh, into the field and started working with the Shetkari Sangatna, I spent a lot of time trying to find people who represented that. So I spoke with leaders, I spoke with uh, mid-level organizers and uh, um, and local, you know, local level leaders, and I spoke with plenty of uh, activists and ordinary participants. And I had a very hard time, except at the top of the leadership, I had a very hard time finding people who, in a one-on-one conversation or in their household, spoke of the movement in those same terms of absolute solidarity and common identity and agreement with everything that the leaders have to say. And I began to realize that a lot of these things, these slogans, these uh, points of agenda that the leaders were articulating, these future visions of what the world will look like after the movement is successful, they're quite ambiguous and people are interpreting them in their own ways. Uh, I think we see that, for example, here at, uh, in the United States with uh, some of the recent political campaign um, campaigns that we've seen going on where 
there's a, a great deal of kind of vague promises being made or vague sloganeering. And a lot of people seem to be uh, extraordinarily enthusiastic about what they're hearing. And I suspect that the same kind of um, the same kind of phenomenon is occurring where these things are really quite ambiguous and people recognize their ambiguity more than we give them credit for. And what they're actually doing is using that ambiguity as a resource. This is an opportunity to help define and shape what this means and what this movement can become and who it's going to serve because it can't serve everybody. It has to, it has to at some point define itself in terms of a particular, lower level agenda that it's going to pursue. So ambiguity for me is, is a window on how a movement functions when it includes such a broad swath of folks. And I began to see it as not a weakness of movements, uh, that lack of definition, but actually sort of a, a, a template for opportunity, uh, uh, it's part of what makes those movements capable of bringing in so many people and keeping them so dynamic because of that struggle to uh, internally to define what's going on. That makes perfect sense, Michael. If I may just move further into the chapters of the book, and when you speak about, uh, in Chapter 2, the contours of community and place, you, you give a very vivid picture of the cultural context of the state of Maharashtra and how identity is signified there in a historical context. And I'm sure for many of the listeners of this show, it's also important to know that this has been a state which has also produced uh, many important political figures in the recent times, uh, and some of whom have had big mass appeal, like Bal Thakre, uh, for instance. And I think that you also touch upon the issue of, very interestingly, the question of caste and linguistic issues and identity. I just want to see how did you find when you went in as a researcher, uh, especially as somebody coming from another cultural background, what was it that struck you most about the way in which all these identity markers played up in the context of Maharashtra in terms of the Shetkari Sankatana? Yeah, and I'll take it back to the idea of ambiguity. So I became kind of fascinated with how contentious many of the seemingly deeply rooted and well-formed notions of identity across the state are. There is the notion of Maharashtrianness. There is the notion of caste affiliation for some folks. There is the notion of regional uh, affiliations and what they mean. And as I explored the history of Maharashtra, I realized that these things have been much more porous than we understand. There's been a lot of boundary shifting around some of these notions of who is and what is Marathi and, and who is and what is Maharashtrian, um, as well as what sort of the key symbols of that have meant throughout history. So uh, great leaders like uh, like Shivaji or um, some of the uh, other more current cultural figures like Bal Thakare and the, and the kinds of symbols that he invokes. Um, what we see again is sort of there has been this long ongoing competition to define the markers of identity within the state. And 
in doing that to sort of craft the boundaries of identity, uh, historical and geographical and cultural. So I was looking at some of those other uh, struggles to identify to to define uh, throughout Maharashtrian history as a way to jump forward and look at something like the Shetkari Sangatna as not an unusual new type of social project, but is something that's really quite human and has been going on uh, forever in a in a way that's uh, very clearly visible in Maharashtra and 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 in a way that's common to all of us. I think this is a, a very sort of ordinary human setup and state of affairs. Thank you. On the note of the being human, I think what I liked also about the structure of the book is where you have uh, structured the argument across chapters. And if I look at chapter three, four, and five, what, what really strikes me about chapter three is you really bring in the question of leadership and the figure of Sharad Joshi, which is, of course, taken up later on. Um, would you like to say something more about what did you find as an anthropologist studying social movements about the persona of Sharad Joshi and all its problematic briefly? Hmm. He's a fascinating guy. He, uh, he unfortunately passed away last year. Um, but I... I I disagreed with him on many things, but I was I was fortunate to spend a lot of time with him. He was extraordinarily, as was everybody in the movement, extraordinarily welcoming to me. Um, and even when they recognized that I was not necessarily uh, an ally, um, though I think they trusted that I was not an enemy, they they were able to <laughs> see me as a scholar who was simply interested in understanding what they were what they were doing. And Joshi was particularly good at this. Um, but the man was extraordinarily intriguing. He was, for those of, for those who don't uh, know anything about him, he was not the typical kind of, uh, Indian rural politician to come on the scene or, uh, Indian rural leader. Um, the folks that we normally associate with, with leadership in rural India are people who, um, in one way or another, craft themselves or their followers craft them as sons of the soil, people who really have ties to agriculture, people who uh, really understand the, uh, the, the cultural and material existence in rural areas, um, and people who are in one way or another incorporated in the social structure and the power structure of, of rural areas. Shada Joshi comes uh, into rural Maharashtra as somebody who grew up in the city, uh, had been a bureaucrat uh, with the UN based in Switzerland, um, didn't really know farming. He bought some land and retreated to the countryside as a, as a gentleman farmer. Um, his common, uh, you know, standard uh, outfit was a golf shirt and a pair of blue jeans and some tennis shoes. He didn't try at all to craft himself as uh, as a rural um, as a as, a, as a, a brother from from the land and this struck a lot of people as being really problematic and unlikely and you know he won't 
succeed and oh my gosh he is succeeding how is this possible and i think actually it goes back to this notion of ambiguity because he was an outsider because he in rural terms was sort of a blank template it was not clear who he was and what he could become as a leader for rural folks and people used that ambiguity about his persona and who he was to try and craft him. Uh, and some of this is conscious and some of this is unconscious. But I saw a real sort of participatory crafting of, of who Shota Joshi became. And in, indeed, he invited that. He, um, his mode of interaction with folks was to really listen quite a bit and to ask them to just see him as a fellow activist rather than the leader of the movement um, and to engage him in conversation rather than um, rather than to have this dynamic of leader on the one hand and follower on the other hand. So fascinating man. Uh, and I'd love to talk with him some more, but I, I, I'm not sure. Did I answer your question? I did. You did. Uh, okay. I, th I think I'll just move on further because I think what that that fascination with the figure of uh, Sharad Joshi takes me further to chapter five, which is about Bali and the title very well. Bali will rise. Dialogics of interest and identity continued um, here. If I may indulge a bit personally, I'm from the southwestern state of India from Kerala, where we have our annual festival called Onam, which celebrates mm. the return of the mythical king Mahabali. And what I found really fascinating here was that the entire chapter uh, talks about how rituals, uh, the way in which the demonic king's persona is mapped onto the leader, and of course, the whole idea of the Puranic worldview in Maharashtra. Um, I was curious to know if uh, in Kerala recently there was a controversy with the BJP Hindu right-wing government uh, trying to say that Onam, the festival which celebrates the return of the King Mahabali, who is supposed to have been the erstwhile ruler of Kerala, should be instead celebrated as Vamana Jayanti and not Mahabali's return because he's a demon. Um, mm. I want. I'm. I think it would be nice if you can tell us uh, more in terms of how you found the Bali Purana playing out in the case of this social movement briefly. Sure. So in, in India, as I understand, there are, there are really two regions of the country where Mahabali is, is highly revered. And so one of them indeed is Kerala and the other is Maharashtra, though in Maharashtra, Bali plays a much quieter role in cultural life. There are no major festivals for Bali, but Maharashtrian agriculturalist, Shaitkaris, they identify with Bali to an extraordinary extent. In fact, they frequently refer to each other as Bali. They'll greet each other on the street as, as <laughs> Bali. And they also see Bali as sort of this once upon a time great king uh, uh, with extraordinary powers. He's a demon. He's a, a benevolent demon with some sort of supernatural capabilities, but he was king of the whole region. And so when the Shetkiri Sanghatna talks about the future. They actually talk about it in terms of the past. And we hear, we see this in lots of other movements as well. They want to sort of make the, make the region great again. And they 
they talk about that re- restoration of greatness as a return to the kingdom of Bali before he was overthrown by, by Vamana. Now, there's a interesting correlation that they make between Shraddha Joshi and Bali. So they, they see, or they, at least in the idiom of the movement, there's some talk of Shraddha Joshi actually being an incarnation of Bali. So he is sort of the first step toward reestablishing the, the, the great kingdom of, of Bali from the past. Now, it's unclear whether people really believe this or if this is just sort of an idiomatic way of talking about what's happening in the movement, because we have to remember that the farmers themselves talk about the, uh, each other as Bali. Uh, and, and there's some contention about who the real Bullies are. The, in Maharashtrian folklore, Bali is seen as sort of a put-upon figure, so a, a noble person who was overthrown unjustly by, uh, by the established powers. And this is kind of how the farmers view themselves, the farmers and, and peasants of the Shetkari Sangatna in Maharashtra. And so to raise one up as Bali is, on the one hand, sort of looking at them as uh, a supernatural being uh, returning from the past. But on, on another hand, it's it's really a very sort of day-to-day pedestrian way of validating uh, the trials and tribulations of of being an agriculturalist in Maharashtra. Excellent. I, I guess the complexity of your argument would be difficult to capture in our interview, but I can definitely say that one thing that really comes out from the reading of the book is that you speak about the multiple narratives which kind of populate a movement and also you go in depth in terms of looking at the different theories of social movement and how some of them are validated or not. When I come to the conclusion of the book and I look at the kind of uh, arguments that you present forward, one thing that really struck me was that I thought I would go back to the title. The key word there is cultivating community. And I just wanted to know how would you relate for a layman uh, in terms of the relationship between a social movement like Shetkari Sangatana and the phrase cultivating community? When I began looking at the movement, as I mentioned, I was I was trying to understand how it is that, at least to appearances, such a broad swath of society can come together and say the same things, identify each other in, uh, with such clarity, um, struggle for the same uh, the same outcomes, and. And then I was the, the second question that extends from that is how does this happen? How you know who who makes that possible? Is it because leaders are very charismatic and um, they're able to sort of craft a hegemonic ideology that everybody buys into, and some of them are being hoodwinked, or is there something else going on? And as I dug more deeply into the movement and realized how many other kinds of interests were being uh, expressed in the movement and how many other kinds of things really were on the movement's agenda at the village level, if not at the, uh, if not at the sort of the, the level of the top leadership, I realized that the movement was really being cultivated 
or crafted by by everybody in it. it rather than it being sort of a single interpretive community where they all sort of hear uh, this ideology in the same ways and abide by it in the same ways and uh, commit their um, their hearts and their and their lives to the movement in the same ways. It was really much more of sort of a dialogical community. There was a there was a dialogue going on across all of these different interest groups uh, and different personal and familial and village level agendas that were in the act of that dialogue actively cultivating what the community becomes. And it's a little obviously there's a little play on words there because they're all cultivators as as well. But that was the part that I found fascinating. And I, uh, I think one of the big themes in the book is that we shouldn't look at the movement so much as a, uh, a singular bounded, coherent, uh, solidified thing, um, with a singular identity and a singular set of goals, but rather as this relatively amorphous, relatively ambiguous, relatively porous thing that is kind of like a constellation of interests. It's kind of a, a, um, a sort of a, a sort of a coalescing of different patterns of interest into a relatively stable sort of engagement that looks thing like, uh, and that is what the movement is. It's not, um, it's not this single coherent community. That's beautifully articulated, Michael. I just want to end by probably looking at the suggestion that you give towards the end of the book is about uh, rethinking our understanding of leaders and the role of leadership in social movements. If I may ask uh, two related questions there, would you therefore treat the Shetkari Sangatana, if I may put it in a very pedestrian way, as a successful social movement? And would you also then think that Sharad Joshi was in that sense um, a, a, a successful leader? This is a great question. And it's a question that I've left unanswered in the book. Uh, because successful social movement implies that the movement has one, ident uh, one idea of success. Because the movement is less thing-like and less uh, less a, a, a single coherent objective as it appears, I think we have to take the idea of success on a sort of a case-by-case -case basis. We have to speak with particular interest groups within the movement and uh, and inquire whether it's been successful for them in their own estimation. Now it's. In some ways, you could argue that the movement as a whole was successful in the sense that uh, it evolved quite a bit over time. Um, Sharda Joshi himself, despite uh, his protestations that he would never do this, um, joined the national government as uh, at a, in a cabinet level position where he was able to uh, pursue some of the Shekhari Sangatana agenda through the structures of power rather than just in an oppositional position. A lot of people objected to this. And a lot of people felt that he had sold out many of the people uh, participating in the movement. Others applauded it as sort of the next level of victory for the movement. Um, so I think on a, if you look at the movement as a whole, there's that question of whether that was a, 
success or a, or a drawback or a failure. But on a village by village level and a family by family level uh, or even a regional level, I think success and failure uh, is uh, sometimes yes and sometimes no. And sometimes not yet determined because there are still people involved in that struggle. Certainly some villages were able to greatly advance their interests through participation in the movement. Um, and, uh, and others were probably frustrated and were not able to achieve what they wanted to achieve. Thank you very much, Michael. On that note of successfulness, I must say that as far as the book is concerned, it indeed seems to be um, a great success, at, at, at least definitely in making us rethink our current notions of social movements, very theoretically nuanced and very well written. So thank you for coming on my show today, explain to us the inspiration and the intricacies of the argument in this. And I hope we would get to read more from you. Um, and maybe if you want to end by telling us what are you writing at the moment, or are you planning a sequel to this or anything at the moment that is, uh, that is, that is part of your research. I'm, I'm working on a couple of different projects, uh, and thank you for asking. One is I'm doing some uh, a, a number of relatively short writing pieces, relatively short articles, trying to make some of the uh, insights that I've taken from the Shetkari Sangatna available to a, a broader, less academic audience in order to shed light on some of the other phenomena that we see happening in the world today, um, everything from the U.S. selections to uh, some of uh, the other social movements that are happening around the world and trying to help us ask better questions about what's really happening within those phenomena. I also, as you may know, Sanjay, some of my work is – uh, in human-centered design, which is quite a different field. So I'm co-writing another book right now on human-centered design and some of the ways that we can approach the notion of the people that designers design for and what those communities are and the interrelations between the different folks in a, in a social setting. Um, so uh, semi-related, very different audience. Wish you all the best for your current and future endeavors and looking forward to reading whatever comes out in the form of a book or otherwise. All the very best. And thank you once again, Michael. So you were listening to Michael Youngblood speaking to us about his wonderful, exciting book, Cultivating Community, Interest, Identity and Ambiguity in an Indian Social Mobilization. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much, Sanjay. <laughs>